Hello, and welcome back to the latest edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. I'm Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Jeremy Avila. In this podcast, Jeff Rubin... Hello. ...and I will be discussing a pair of cases involving Confrontation Clause-related issues. The first is a case from the California Supreme Court that highlights the potential pitfalls when seeking to introduce confessions or statements of accomplices in a defendant's trial for purportedly non-hearsay purposes. It also provides an interesting discussion of the limits of what evidence can be introduced when a defendant opens the door to otherwise inadmissible hearsay. The second is an appellate decision addressing the issue of whether the Aranda-Bruton rule applies when the statement of the co-defendant sought to be introduced at a joint trial is non-testimonial. This podcast will provide 50 minutes of general MCLE credit. Jeff, let's start off talking about the case People v. Hobson from the California Supreme Court. It's a little complicated, but hopefully we can break it down in a way that makes sense. What were the relevant facts of this case? Well, Jeremy, the defendant and the eventual murder victim, a 66-year-old nurse, both rented rooms in the same house. The defendant and her boyfriend decided to kill the victim shortly before the victim was scheduled to fly home to visit her daughter in Georgia. The defendant was hurting for money, and she thought the victim would likely have obtained some cash in anticipation of her trip. Uh, The day before the murder, she buys several uh, items, including pepper spray, a folding knife, and sweats that were too big for her. Now, in the early morning of the day of the murder, the boyfriend calls the defendant twice, once before he comes over to uh, the the defendant's home, and once after he arrives at the defendant's home. Within a few hours, the victim is murdered in the garage of the home of the defendant, uh, and she's... the the victim is killed by the defendant and her boyfriend. Now, they both get uh, charged with murder, and at the trial, there ended up being two accounts of how the murder occurred. One from the boyfriend, who was deceased at the time of the trial, but whose confession was ultimately introduced, and one from the defendant when she testified. Now, there was some overlap between things. They differed in in significant ways, though, uh, but even though they differed in significant ways, it wasn't disputed that you know, after the murder, the defendant and her boyfriend cleaned up the murder scene. Uh, they did so using gloves that the defendant had kept in her room and uh, cleaning supplies that were stored in the garage. It was also not disputed between the accounts that the defendant and her boyfriend placed the victim's body and suitcase into the victim's minivan, which was then driven by the defendant to an auction house where the minivan was abandoned. All right. Well, so how exactly did this murder come to light then? The owner of the house, where the defendant and the, and the victim rented rooms, entered the garage early in the morning and noticed things were out of place. The, the owner uh, also realized that the butcher knife and the machete were missing. When the defendant and her boyfriend came home around 6 in the morning, this was after they abandoned the, the victim's van, the defendant spoke with the owner. And according to the owner... The defendant denied knowing anything about the mission machete or the knife. She also told the owner that the sidewalk, uh, presumably a sidewalk that was near the garage, was wet because she tried to clean up some coke that she had spilled there. Later that morning, the owner found a bloody blanket in uh, in a garbage can and learned the victim hadn't arrived in Georgia as scheduled. The owner then contacted the police who located the minivan and discovered the victim's body. Now after the body was discovered at that point, did the police contact either the defendant or her boyfriend? Yes, they spoke with the defendant before arresting her. And at that time, she denied knowing what happened to the victim and kind of suggested that a homeless person she had seen in the neighborhood may have been involved. Shortly after that, the police arrest her and her boyfriend. Now, what about the boyfriend? Did the police speak with him? Yeah, a a few days later, the boyfriend confessed. Now, in the confession, which was given while the boyfriend was, it was pretty upset, he was crying, very apologetic. In that confession, he claimed the defendant suggested robbing the victim and had devised a plan to do so a few days uh, before the murder. The boyfriend said the defendant provided the sweatshirt and sweatpants he wore during the robbery. 
And the boyfriend said he tried to back out of the plan after arriving at the scene of the murder, but the defendant convinced him to go through with it. The boyfriend claimed defendant lured the victim into the garage and he hit her with the machete. He also said he later saw the defendant kneeling over the victim's body with a bloody butcher knife. According to the boyfriend, it was the defendant who suggested getting rid of the victim's body, who put the victim's suitcase in the minivan, directed their cleanup efforts, and drove the minivan. The boyfriend said the defendant poured coke on the bloodstains after they returned to her house because she had seen on the television show, on some television show that, cro- that the coke breaks up the blood and makes it easier to clean. The boyfriend also showed the investigating detectives where he had dumped some clothing and other items used during the crime. This allowed the police to recover the machete, which had the victim's blood on it. Six weeks later, after he gave this uh, confession, but before trial, he committed suicide in jail. All right. So did the prosecution eventually try to use the boyfriend's confession in evidence? Well, before trial, the defense successfully argued the boyfriend's confession could not be admitted over a confrontation clause objection. It was just straight up testimonial hearsay. The prosecutor agreed he couldn't not introduce the confession, but said and, and told the trial court that he might wish to revisit the issue if the defendant testified and opened any doors. The trial court at that time indicated it would consider the request. Uh, it did allow, the trial court did allow an evidence of the fact that the boyfriend had assisted the police in recovering the machete, provided there was no reference to defendant's involvement in disposing of the evidence. So the defendant's confession was not introduced in the people's case in chief then? Correct. And did the defendant end up testifying at the trial? Yeah, her primary defense was that her boyfriend committed the murder and she was coerced into assisting him in covering it up. The defendant said before the murder, she had told her boyfriend the victim was going on a trip to, Ger- to, to, uh, to Georgia and had asked him if they could spend some time together while the victim was away. She said her boyfriend called her the, the morning of the murder, uh, once to say he was on his way and once to say that he had arrived. The defendant said that when she went to the back door of the house, after the, I guess the, the boyfriend uh, contacted her a second time, she was shocked to see the victim lying in a pool of blood on the garage floor with her boyfriend standing over the victim. The defendant claimed that the boyfriend was wearing the sweatshirt and sweatpants that she had bought as a gift for defendant's sister, as well as protective foot covers she claimed to have given him months earlier. The defendant said she helped her boyfriend clean up the crime scene using gloves kept in her room because he threatened to hurt her and her adult son if she refused to do so. She also testified her boyfriend had previously told her that he was in a motorcycle club that did things that were shady and that he had killed a man. She also testified the defendant indicated he would hurt her or kill her if they broke up. Now, these statements were made before the murder, but they were admitted by the court for the limited purpose of establishing defendant's state of mind at the time she heard the statements. And did the defendant recount anything else that her boyfriend told her? Yes. Now, of course, it was disputed whether or not the boyfriend actually told her this, but when the defendant was testifying, she said her boyfriend told her he needed money, that he had tried to rob the victim because he thought the victim would have money in anticipation of her trip, that he sliced the victim's throat with a machete, and followed it up by a butcher knife when the machete proved too dull, and that he killed the victim because he thought the victim could identify him, and she had begun to scream. The defendant also claimed it was her boyfriend who told her to put the victim's suitcase in the victim's minivan to make it look like the victim had gone on the trip. She acknowledged driving the minivan herself with the victim's body in it while the boyfriend drove his own car. But she asserted that it was her boyfriend who told her to pour the coke on the bloodstains to eliminate them. So some of the boyfriend's statements then were introduced by the defense. Yes, it was the defense who introduced some of these statements. And did the defendant recount any statements of the boyfriend during cross-examination? Yes, some additional statements came out on cross. The defendant admitted that she knew her boyfriend had spoken to police officers and had showed the police where the murder weapon was. The defendant then voluntarily 
made reference to the boyfriend's confession. It ha- the, the boyfriend's confession had not yet been admitted at that point. And she said her boyfriend had lied and said that she had something to do with it, but she actually did not have anything to do with it. So then what happens at that point? Well, the prosecutor asked the trial court to admit the boyfriend's confession under evidence code section 1202 to impeach the hearsay declarations that came in through the defendant, the hearsay declarations of the boyfriend. So you mean to impeach the statements of the boyfriend the defendant claimed the boyfriend made to her? Correct. All right, and did the trial court allow in the confession under the theory that the boyfriend's prior inconsistent statements would be admissible pursuant to section 1202 to impeach, as you said, the hearsay declarations that came in through the defendant? Yes, the trial court ruled this way, even though the defendant was objecting that allowing in those statements under 1202 would violate the confrontation clause, and even though the defense argued the prosecution should not be allowed to introduce statements made by the boyfriend to the police days after the murder, just because the defendant recounted statements made by the boyfriend to explain her state of mind as to what happened in the garage. So then, how, what happens on redirect examination? How does this play out? Okay, so on redirect, and we have to presume uh, that the defendant uh, was thinking that her boyfriend's statement might be coming into evidence. She acknowledged that her boyfriend had accused her of planning the crime and helping him, and denied that his confession and the events outlined in the confession were true. And so this is uh, a situation where the defendant is uh, denying telling her boyfriend that the victim would have a, a good amount of money with her on the trip. She denied telling her boyfriend that they should rob the victim for her money, and she denied the plan was to have her boyfriend hide in the garage while she convinced the victim to come into the into the garage. So in other words, what was going on was the confession was coming in sort of piecemeal at that juncture through the questioning of the the defendant. On rebuttal, though, the prosecution introduced the actual confession of the boyfriend. And how, if at all, was the confession of the boyfriend used during closing argument by the prosecution? Well, during closing argument, the prosecutor said there's evidence that the defendant is a direct perpetrator that she had the bloody knife, the butcher knife in her hand while she was leaning over the body of the victim. And I'm uh, quoting from from the the language of the case. You heard that through the statements of the boyfriend that the interviewing detective told us about, you heard all this information in which she was a direct perpetrator. And then later in the argument, the prosecutor said, we heard from the interviewing detective that the boyfriend actually told the detective it was the defendant's plan that he would hide in the garage and she would create some secret plan to get the victim out of her room and into the garage. And did the boyfriend's confession get used in the rebuttal argument portion at all? Yes. So during the defense uh, closing argument, they portrayed the issue in the case as whether they believed the defendant or the boyfriend's confession. And that, uh, the defense argument featured attacks on the veracity of the boyfriend's confession. So in rebuttal, the prosecutor expressly invited the jury to believe the boyfriend's confession over the defendant's testimony. The prosecutor pointed out that the boyfriend admitted his role in the murder, cried during the confession, and expressed remorse by leading the police to the murder weapon, whereas the defendant came up with different explanations for each piece of evidence and had lied. The prosecutor also argued that the boyfriend's actions in admitting his role in the crime made him more credible than the defendant. Defense counsel raised no objections during uh, these portions of the prosecutor's closing arguments. All right, so those essentially are all of the relevant facts from the case. What ends up happening once this gets to the appeal? Well, the issue in the Court of Appeal was whether admission of the boyfriend's confession violated defendant's Sixth Amendment right of confrontation to confront the boyfriend. The Court of Appeal held there was no violation because they found it wasn't introduced for its truth but instead solely to undermine the credibility of defendant's own account. And so then this gets taken up by the California State Supreme Court. Did they end up coming to the same conclusion as the Court of Appeal? No. The majority of the California Supreme Court disagreed with the appellate court. There were two justices who, who dissented. The majority held the admission of the boyfriend's confession violated defendant's Sixth Amendment right of confrontation. And, and why was that? What was their reasoning of getting there? Well. They first pointed out 
it was undisputed that the boyfriend's confession, which defendant had no opportunity to test through cross-examination, uh, obviously the boyfriend was dead, that they pointed out that qualified as testimonial hearsay within the meaning of Crawford versus Washington. Now, you might remember Jeremy and Crawford, the US Supreme Court identified certain kinds of statements as uh, testimonial statements. And unconfronted, accomplished statements to authorities, those are, were considered in Crawford as core testimonial statements that the Confrontation Clause was plainly meant to exclude. That's true, but I also thought that Crawford indicated that if a testimonial statement is for purposes other than establishing the truth of the matter asserted, that is a non-hearsay purpose, it's not barred by the Confrontation Clause. Isn't that right? Yes, in general, that, that's true. And actually, the majority acknowledged that principle. For them, though, the principal issue in the case was whether the confession of the boyfriend's uncross-examined confession was actually used for a non-hearsay purpose or whether it was, in fact, used for its truth as evidence against the accused in violation of the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights. They pointed out that regardless of whether the confession was admitted under a theory that it was being offered for a non-hearsay purpose, they said, if it turns out on examination that it's only relevant if it's true, then really it's hearsay. It's not non-hearsay. <laughs> so, so did the majority then think that the confession was really only relevant if it was in fact true? Basically, yes. The majority believed that confession was not even admissible for the non-hearsay purpose that it was ostensibly admitted for. Now, the trial court had allowed the confession into evidence after defendant testified about the statements her boyfriend had supposedly made to her on the night of the murder. The trial court thought that the confession was therefore admissible under Evidence Code Section 1202 for the non-hearsay purpose of undermining the credibility of the hearsay declarant, the boyfriend. The majority did not think the confession could be, or more importantly, was ever used for this uh, asserted purpose. Why is that? All right, to, to fully understand why not, it's important to understand how Evidence Code Section 1202 is supposed to work. So let's go through that. How, how exactly does Section 1202, or how is it exactly supposed to work? Well, at bottom, uh, and this is just kind of a, a, a nutshell version of 1202, if a hearsay declaration is offered into evidence, and that could be like, it could come into evidence as a declaration against interest, or a spontaneous uh, statement, or it's, it's admitted under some other hearsay exception. Then section 1202 allows in evidence of a statement or other conduct by the hearsay declarant that is inconsistent with, with that statement for the purpose of attacking the credibility of the declarant. It also allows in any other evidence offered to attack or support the credibility of the declarant if it would have been admissible had the declarant of the hearsay been a witness in the hearing. So in other words, you know, the, the defendant introduced the boyfriend's confession, boyfriend wasn't there, but 1202 can potentially allow in evidence to impeach the hearsay declaration, the, the uh, statements that supposedly the boyfriend made when he was uh, at the scene of the crime. So why is it that evidence code section 1202 wouldn't allow the confession as being inconsistent with the boyfriend's statements at the scene as, as they were recounted by the defendant? Well, for a couple of reasons, according to the majority. First, they said the defendant's testimony regarding the statements made to her by her boyfriend on the night of the, of the murder were admitted, according to the trial court, for the non-hearsay purpose simply of explaining defendant's state of mind at the murder scene and explaining her reasons for assisting the boyfriend in the cover-up. But, and this is probably the most key point of this whole case, but evidence code section only allows in evidence of a statement or other contact conduct by a declarant that is inconsistent with a statement by such declarant received in evidence as hearsay evidence. In other words, section 1202 does not authorize admitting evidence to impeach the credibility of a statement when that statement is offered for a non-hearsay purpose because the truth of the statement is irrelevant. We don't care about the credibility of the speaker. If limited to the purpose for which the statements of the boyfriend, as they were recounted by the defendant, were admitted, it wouldn't make a difference if they were true. 
And so the boyfriend's credibility was not placed in issue. I see. But now those statements, even if for the limited non-hearsay purpose of which they were admitted, would they would only have probative value if they were, in fact, made by the boyfriend, right? Well, that's true. But whether they were made and whether the defendant believed they were true would only put the defendant's credibility at issue, not the boyfriend's credibility, right? I mean, should, if it, the content of the statement puts uh, theoretically the boyfriend's credibility issue, but whether or not the statement was made and whether or not the defendant believed they were true, that puts the defendant's credibility issue. And the trial court could not have allowed the boyfriend's confession into evidence to impeach the defendant under Section 1202, only the boyfriend. All right, I see. So it seems to me that while the asserted purpose of the defense introduced these statements wasn't so much as to explain the defendant's state of mind, but they were really hoping the jury would take those alleged statements as true. And granted, you could make a colorable argument that the statements the defendant allegedly made about his past history of violence were genuinely admissible to establish why the defendant would feel coerced or forced into you know, helping him in the cover-up. But many of the statements that the defendant alleged her boyfriend told her at the scene, for example, that he needed money, that he tried to rob the victim because he thought the victim would uh, have money in anticipation of her trip, uh, another that he sliced the victim's throat with a machete, and that he killed the victim because he thought the victim could identify him and she began to scream. All of these statements, all of these things seem to have little to do with the defendant's state of mind. and. They really just seem to be designed to pin blame on the boyfriend who's not there. You know, that's an excellent point, Jeremy. Even the majority recognized that while defense counsel was claiming the defendant's account of what her boyfriend told her at the scene was only offered to show her state of mind, defense counsel was undoubtedly hoping that the jury would also take what the boyfriend purportedly said as true. In fact, the majority also suggested that uh, to avoid the potential misuse of the boyfriend's purported statements by the jury, the trial court could have and should have curbed much uh, of what the defendant could testify to regarding what her boyfriend said at the scene. In other words, the majority recognized the defense went further in introducing aspects of what the boyfriend allegedly said than they should have. But since the prosecution didn't object to trial, that the defendant had effectively crossed the line with her testimony into the land of hearsay, they were stuck having to assume on review that the boyfriend's statements were admitted uh, solely for a non-hearsay purpose. And so does that end up being the only reason that the court finds it was error to admit um, all of these, the, the confession that the boyfriend provided? No. After explaining why the boyfriend's confession couldn't be admitted under Section 1202 to impeach, they held that even if there had been some valid non-hearsay theory for admitting the boyfriend's confession to impeach the boyfriend's credibility under Section 1202. And this is also another key aspect of the opinion. The jury was never informed of the limited non-hearsay purpose for which the confession was supposedly admitted. And critically, the prosecution did not use the boyfriend's confession for such a limited purpose. Rather, the, the court said, the prosecution used the confession to establish the role that the defendant played in the murder. That is, for the truth of the, uh, of the boyfriend's uh, confession. The prosecution relied on and argued the boyfriend's confession should be believed for its truth to contradict defendant's testimony by establishing a different account of the events surrounding the crime. The majority pointed out that if the prosecution wasn't asking the jury to use the boyfriend's confession for its truth, for its truth there would have been no reason to elicit testimony from the investigating detective uh, that while the boyfriend was confessing, he was very apologetic and he was uh, sorry for not being honest initially and he was crying. In addition, the conclusion that the boyfriend's confession was used for its truth, that's supported by looking at the prosecutor's arguments where he expressly invited the jury to believe the boyfriend's confession over defendant's testimony. So, <clears throat> If, if there had been a valid non-hearsay purpose for introducing the boyfriend's confession, the result would not be any different because the confession was not used for a non-hearsay purpose. But I'm, I'm still curious, 
Could there have been a valid non-hearsay purpose for introducing this confession here, Jeff? I suppose the prosecution could have tried to introduce the boyfriend's confession under the theory that the defendant was uh, telling the truth about what the boyfriend said at the scene, but what the boyfriend said at the scene was not true. Okay, so under this rationale, 1202 could have allowed in the confession to show the boyfriend was not credible, and thus his statements, as recounted by the defendant, were not true. In fact, in the Hobson opinion, the majority mentioned a case from Mississippi where they found in that Mississippi case no Sixth Amendment violation where the defendant had introduced statements of a deceased accomplice to other jail inmates. And the prosecution introduced uh, the statement of, the, of that same deceased accomplice that had been made to police in order to impeach the veracity of the deceased accomplice under, uh, under an evidence code section very comparable to section 1202. In other words, where the prosecution wasn't contesting whether the statements to the other inmates were made, but was contesting whether or not those statements were true. And, then the, and the statements of the other inmates had been offered by the defense for their truth. Moreover, as the, the Hobson majority indicated, in Hobson, it, it wouldn't make sense for the prosecution to simply try and impeach the credibility of the boyfriend, right? Since doing so would have undermined the credibility of the boyfriend in general, including his confession to the detectives, which was, was favorable to the prosecution. Right, and there were no other possible non-hearsay purposes for the admission of the boyfriend's confession at all? Well, actually the Attorney General suggested two additional non-hearsay purposes for the admission. And what were those two? First, the AG argued, if the boyfriend's confession in which he said he and the defendant jointly planned the crime was in fact made by the boyfriend, in other words, if the confession was in fact made, regardless of whether it was true, it would still make it less likely that he would have readily admitted to the defendant he committed the crime alone. Thus, the AG said, this would provide a non-hearsay purpose for admission because it would help undermine the defendant's assertion that her boyfriend acknowledged sole responsibility to the defendant, even assuming the boyfriend's confession to the police was not true. Second, the AG argued that the statement of the boyfriend would serve to impeach defendant's explanation of why she changed her story at trial, uh, regardless of whether it was true, and uh, thus would be admissible for a non-hearsay purpose. That is, the boyfriend's statements under this non-hearsay theory would help show that the defendant did not come up with a different story at trial than what she originally told the police uh, because of her alleged fear of the boyfriend if she ratted him out, which was what the defendant was claiming, but because she thought the boyfriend's statement would be admitted at trial and she needed to come up with a different story to account for what the boyfriend told the police. All right, well, both of those sound like pretty plausible reasons, if you ask me. You know, I tend to agree, but the majority didn't care about the possible existence of these alternative non-hearsay purposes because they felt neither the prosecution nor the trial court raised or relied on these theories of admissibility and because in the end, the boyfriend's confession was not actually used for any of these uh, alternative non-hearsay purposes. It was instead just used for the illegitimate purpose of establishing defendant's role in the crime. Isn't there, though, Jeff, a rule of appellate review that says if a judgment rests on admissible evidence, it will not be reversed because the trial court admitted that evidence upon a different theory, a mistaken theory, or even one not raised at all below? You know, Jeremy, it's possible that this rule might have saved the conviction had the prosecutor not used the statement for its truth. But since, according to the majority, the prosecutor made improper use of the statement for its truth, this fact prevented the majority from relying on the usual rule to uphold the judgment. Okay. So did, did the court end up saying whether if the boyfriend's confession had, in fact, been offered and used for these non-hearsay non purposes whether that would have it, you know, been proper? The majority didn't venture an opinion on whether the first alternative non-hearsay uh, theory would have been a valid basis for admission had it been raised. But the majority did affirmatively reject as invalid the second alternative non-hearsay rationale. And, and why as to the second alternative rationale? 
because the, the majority believed it wasn't clear how the boyfriend's confession could explain why the defendant came up with a story that she did since number one her trial testimony contradicted what was said in the confession and two the prosecutor argued the defendant had testified in a manner calculated to explain away the evidence adduced during the prosecution's case in chief that is before the boyfriend's confession was introduced and before the trial court even ruled it admissible it makes me wonder though whether the majority may have overlooked the fact that when the defendant testified, she may not technically have known, but she likely assumed that the boyfriend's confession was eventually going to come into evidence. And thus, she'd have an incentive to craft her testimony in a manner that would allow her to confirm some of what was said by the boyfriend, which would add some plausibility to her account, while still denying knowledge of the murder or, not, or, or participation in the murder. And, and what about the basic principle that if there is a legitimate non-hearsay purpose for introducing a co-defendant's confession and it is subject to a ruling instruction and used solely for a non-hearsay purpose, the Sixth Amendment is not violated. Did the majority take issue with that basic principle? No. To the contrary. The majority seemed to accept that if, for example, an accomplice's confession is used like it was used in the United States Supreme Court case of Tennessee versus Street, there wouldn't be any Sixth Amendment problem. And how was the accomplice's confession used in Tennessee versus Street in that case? Okay, well, uh, for those listeners who uh, did, did not hear our original uh, podcast a, a little while ago on uh, Randall Bruton, or uh, they might have heard it but have forgotten it, in Street, the defendant testified that his confession was coerced and that the sheriff taking his statement had directed him to say the same thing that his co-defendant had said in the co-defendant's confession. Well, to rebut this claim, the prosecutor called the sheriff to testify to what the co-defendant had said in his confession, a confession which implicated the defendant but differed in detail from the defendant's confession. The prosecutor referred to the co-defendant's confession in his closing argument to dispute defendant's claim that he had been forced to repeat his co-defendant's statement. Now, the high court in the street upheld the trial court's ruling because the evidence, they said, had been admitted for a legitimate non-hearsay purpose of rebutting the defendant's testimony that his own confession was merely a coerced copy of the co-defendant's statement. But in street, unlike in Hobson, the impeachment value of the co-defendant's confession didn't derive from the truth of the matters asserted, but from the bare fact that the co-defendant's account differed from the defendant's which undermined defendant's claim that the sheriff had coerced him into repeating the co-defendant's confession on his own. Also, unlike in Hobson, in Street, the jury was given direction as to the purpose for which the statement was admitted, and the prosecution restricted its questioning and argument to the limited non-hearsay purpose for which the co-defendant's confession had been offered. Prosecutors who were interested in, in uh, other examples of situations where a statement of a co-defendant or accomplice is properly admitted for a non-hearsay purpose, you can find uh, some examples in the cases relied upon by the Attorney General that are mentioned in the Hobson opinion but are distinguished by the majority. For example, uh, there's a Virginia case called Hodges versus uh, Commonwealth where the court held the confession of, accomplice, of an accomplice killed by a defendant in which the accomplice admitted a conspiracy with the defendant was properly introduced over a confrontation clause objection where the statement was offered for the non-hearsay purpose of showing a motive for the defendant to kill the accomplice and the prosecutor only used it for that purpose. So Jeff, my understanding is that the AG came up with a separate argument for finding no violation of the Sixth Amendment, namely that even if the boyfriend's unconfronted confession were admitted for its truth, the defendant opened the door to use that when her testimony gave the incomplete and misleading impression that the confession only implicated the boyfriend and that they weren't statements he made about the crime. What did the majority have to say about this opening the door argument? Okay, so the majority rejected the opening of the door argument for two reasons. First, the majority said the defendant did not leave the jury with any false impression that the statements to her by the, de by the defendant at the scene were the only statements he made about the crime. The majority pointed out 
the jury would have been aware that the boyfriend had made other statements, considering that during the prosecution's case in chief, the investigating detective said he had interviewed the boyfriend after the murder and that the boyfriend showed the police where he disposed of the clothing and other items used during the murder. Also, during cross-examination of the defendant, she admitted that she knew her boyfriend had given a confession implicating her during that interview, which she reiterated in her, direct, in her redirect examination. Second, the majority said that even if defendant had left the misimpression that her boyfriend had made no other statement about his role in the murder, the admission of the boyfriend's full confession ventured far beyond what, if anything, would have been necessary to dispel that impression. Now, without stating whether they were prepared to accept that a defendant could open the door to allow in testimony over a confrontation clause objection in some circumstances, the majority pointed out that courts which have recognized this open the door exception to the confrontation right have also recognized it's a limited right. And because if they make it too broad, the exception will swallow the usual confrontation clause rule. In the case before it, they said, if the real goal was simply to correct an incomplete and misleading impression that the boyfriend's statements to the defendant were the only statements that he made about the crime, it would have been enough to confirm that the boyfriend later gave the police a statement without the need to go into the, the damning details of what he actually said. Won't this holding by the majority, though, give defendants carte blanche, really, to just testify that any unavailable witness took credit for the crime without giving the prosecution the ability to counter that type of testimony? Well, the AG made that kind of argument. And the majority recognized the defendant may have conveyed more of the boyfriend's out-of-court statements than was strictly necessary to explain her role in the cover-up. However, they said the remedy in that case is not to allow in the boyfriend's entire confession. They said the prosecution could have objected to the testimony of the defendant regarding what the boyfriend told her on the scene on hearsay or other evidentiary grounds, as soon as she started going beyond what was absolutely necessary to show her state of mind, or it could have asked that the jury be admonished to consider that testimony only for the limited purpose of considering its, the statement's effects on the defendant's state of mind. This approach, the majority said, that would be the way to address the concerns of the prosecution rather than doing what the prosecution did, which was wait until the defendant's direct examination was over, introduce a detailed recounting of the boyfriend's confession for the putative purpose of impeaching his credibility as a hearsay declarant, and then relying on the confession as substantive evidence of the defendant's role in the murder. So now, can a defendant ever open the door to testimony that would otherwise be inadmissible over a hearsay or a confrontation clause objection? Well, the majority left open the possibility that it might be acceptable in some cases for the prosecution to argue that the defendant had opened the door to admission of otherwise inadmissible testimonial statements. But they declined to adopt a general opening of the door exception to the confrontation right or decide if such a right existed what the scope was of any such exception. Was, uh, was there any guidance provided or offered in the opinion by the court as to when the door to otherwise inadmissible statements might be opened? And if so, how much information may be introduced if that door is viewed as having already been opened? Only indirectly. You know, in the majority opinion, there's a list of cases from other jurisdictions illustrating different circumstances when the open-the-door exception has been found either applicable or not applicable. Now, these cases that adopted the exception, they weren't endorsed, nor were they rejected by the majority. They were just viewed and, and talked about as presenting circumstances distinct from those existing in the Hobson case. So, before a prosecutor attempts to introduce evidence under the open-the-door exception, it might be a good idea to take a look at some of these cases to see whether the door is actually being opened, and if so, how much stuff can come in without violating the Sixth Amendment. Let's talk a little bit about the dissents. Now, the dissenting opinion in the case, unlike the Attorney General, the dissent argued that the defense implicitly waived her right to confront her boyfriend when she testified on cross-examination that she knew he had made a statement implicating her and that the statement was a lie. What did the majority say about this argument raised by the dissent? 
Well, aside from criticizing the dissent, the dissent for running afoul of the general practice of the California Supreme Court to avoid deciding cases on grounds the parties neither briefed nor argued, the majority found the argument faulty on its merits because they said it was premised on this assumption that defendant's statement that the boyfriend's confession was false resulted in the prosecution being put at an unfair disadvantage, thus entitling the prosecution to level the field by admitting the full unconfronted confession. The majority said, you know, this argument might, might have force if in fact the defendant had misrepresented the content of the confession to her advantage. And they cited to evidence code section 356, which basically allows an opposing party to introduce evidence of a statement that the other party has introduced in part in order to place the statement in context. But the majority did not believe the defendant's statement actually disadvantaged the prosecution. The majority pointed out the defendant didn't rely on any aspect of the confession for its truth. She only indicated it contained a version of events that conflicted with her own. Thus, the only representation she made about the content of the confession was not only accurate, and if anything, more helpful to the prosecution than it was to her, since it informed the jury that her boyfriend had told the, defect the detectives that she, uh, that she had something to do with it. So, the, the prosecution really wasn't disadvantaged by the way she talked about the uh, defendant's confession to the police. So, bottom line here, did the California Supreme Court reverse the case because of their finding the defendant's Sixth Amendment right was violated? Yes or no? Well, they found error, but they remanded the case to the Court of Appeal to determine whether the violation was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. All right, let's... Uh, after all of this, any, are there any positive takeaways from this holding for us, Jeff? Yeah. Well, Hobson makes it clear that if a limiting instruction is given, it's permissible for a prosecutor to introduce even a testimonial confession of an accomplice for a legitimate non-hearsay purpose without running afoul of the Confrontation Clause. And also, it's a legitimate non-hearsay purpose to introduce statements impeaching the veracity of a co-defendant when the co-defendant's statement is offered into evidence by the defendant for its truth. For example, like as a declaration against interest. They also made it clear that notwithstanding the Sixth Amendment, if a defendant selectively introduces portions of an out-of-court testimonial statement, they, the defendant can't object to the admission of, of all of that entire statement on the same, same subject. All right. Um, one last thing I want to ask before we switch gears to our second case. You had mentioned earlier that the prosecution was allowed to introduce evidence the boyfriend assisted the police in recovering the machete on the grounds. Did, did the defense ever object that this was implied hearsay? I mean, after all, by stating that they interviewed the defendant and that he then showed them where the machete was used, uh, where the machete used in the killing was located, doesn't that somehow implicitly convey that he told them he was involved in this whole killing? You know, an objection on that, that was sort of the first thing that came to my mind when I started reading this case and, and seeing what, what actually had occurred in the trial. That obje an objection to uh, the introduction of that information on grounds it was implied hearsay was actually raised in the lower appellate court. The lower appellate court denied the claim because what they said was the testimony about the... Uh, the boyfriend leading the police to the location of the murder weapon wasn't offered for the truth, but only to show the course of the investigation. That is, it wasn't offered to show the boyfriend knew the location of the weapon or that he was telling the truth about where he put the weapon uh, because neither of those were in dispute at the trial. But that claim was never re-raised in the California Supreme Court. Okay, well that clears that up. Um, let's move on to our second case, People versus Washington which involves an issue touched upon in one of our previous Inquisitive Prosecutor podcasts on the Aranda-Bruton Rule. Specifically, whether the Aranda-Bruton Rule requires the exclusion of an unredacted, non-testimonial statement of a co-defendant in a joint trial. Jeff, what, what's the relevant facts in the Washington case? Okay, so uh, in Washington, the defendant shot and killed the victim in a gang-related shooting. He was joined in this venture by two co-defendants. The co-defendants are arrested soon after the shooting and are placed in the same jail cell along with a hidden recording device. And that 
device recorded several statements uh, between these co-defendants, which implicated the defendant and the co-defendants in the shooting. At trial, the judge admitted snippets of the jailhouse recordings, but only against the co-defendants. The trial court expressly instructed the jury not to consider the recordings against the defendant. Now, on appeal, the essence of defendant's claim was that the admission of his statements, uh, the admission of this statement, uh, violated the Aranda-Bruton doctrine. Although the actual claim was that the defendant provided ineffective assistance to counsel because his trial attorney didn't move to sever the trial on grounds the admission of the co-defendant's statements would prejudice the defendant. That was, the bottom line is the defendant was objecting to the admission of the co-defendant's statements at their joint trial. So did the Court of Appeal end up agreeing with the defendant's claim of a Bruton violation here? No. And why is that? Well, Jeremy, for the answer to make sense, I have to give you just a brief overview of the Bruton rule. All right, if we have to go down that path. So under the Bruton Doctrine, sometimes called the Aranda-Bruton Doctrine, uh, the admission of the co-defendant's unredacted confession under joint trial violates the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confront and cross-examine witnesses, even if the jury is instructed not to consider the confession as evidence against the defendant, unless the co-defendant testifies and is subject to cross-examination. The rationale behind the rule requiring the exclusion of an unredacted co-defendant's confession from a joint trial is based on the premise that the confession is so powerfully incriminating, the jury can't be expected to follow a court's instructions and put, uh, put the evidence out of its collective mind when evaluating the defendant's guilt. So accordingly, a trial court faced with a prosecution request to admit a co-defendant's confession in a joint trial has to resort to some options uh, beyond a limiting instruction, such as redacting the co-defendant's confession in a way that admits reference to the defendant but doesn't prejudice the co-defendant, severing the trial or using separate juries for each defendant, or excluding the evidence altogether. However, the Bruton Rule is grounded on the Confrontation Clause alone, and the Sixth Amendment right to confront and cross-examine witnesses has evolved since uh, the Bruton decision came down in a way that requires re-examining the rule in light of that evolution. Uh, How is that? Well, uh, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. We talked a little bit about Crawford versus Washington. But in that decision back in 2004, the high court, they both broadened and narrowed the scope of the Sixth Amendment uh, right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. Under the approach adopted in Crawford, the Sixth Amendment protection was broadened to bar the admission of testimonial statements, regardless of the reliability, absent a defendant's current or prior opportunity to cross-examine the declarant. However, the protection of the Sixth Amendment was narrowed in Crawford insofar as it uh, no longer protected against the admission of non-testimonial statements, regardless of whether the defendant had an opportunity to cross-examine the declarant. Because the Bruton Doctrine is grounded exclusively in the Confrontation Clause, the holding in Crawford not only narrowed the reach of the Confrontation Clause, it also narrowed the reach of the Bruton Rule. So, an unredacted non-testimonial statement made by a co-defendant can be admitted at a joint trial without violating the Confrontation Clause, and consequently, without violating the Bruton Rule. And all of that is consistent with the holding in People v. Arceo from 2011, and the majority of the federal circuit courts, right? Yes. And even though the Washington court stated that's, that its analysis was adopted by only one other published California case on the issue, which is Arceo, in actuality, in People versus Cortez from 2016, all the justices of the California Supreme Court agreed, albeit in summary fashion, that the Bruton Rule does not apply to non-testimonial hearsay. Also, at last look, not only have the majority of federal courts adopted this conclusion, all 10 circuits that have addressed the issue have unanimously adopted this conclusion. However, the Washington court was one of the very few courts to address the alternative contention of the defense that allowing in an unredacted, non-testimonial statement of a co-defendant, even subject to a limiting instruction, violated the due process clause as opposed to the confrontation clause. And what, if anything, did the Washington 
case have to say about that claim? Well, they treated it seriously in recognition of the fact that in Bruton and also in, in, in Aranda, uh, the court indicated that it may also be a denial of due process to rely on a jury's presumed ability to disregard a co-defendant's confession implicating another defendant when it's determining uh, the defendant's guilt or innocence. Nevertheless, the Washington court held neither Aranda nor Bruton ultimately relied upon due process as a basis for the rule they announced and declined the defendant's request to fashion a due process-based Aranda-Bruton doctrine. And they gave actually plenty of reasons for doing so. Uh, We discussed those reasons uh, in detail in the accompanying IPG memo, but I suspect those reasons are going to hold up if this, uh, the defendant in the case ever petitions uh, for review in the California Supreme Court. Did the court um, say anything about whether due process might be violated by the introduction of a non-testimonial statement of a co-defendant in a joint trial if no limiting instruction were given? They left the question open, but they indicated even if it's a non-testimonial statement, if no limiting instruction was given, uh, there could be a violation. And how about this uh, jailhouse conversation? Did the court find that the conversation between the co-defendants qualified as non-testimonial hearsay under Crawford? Yeah, and that was an easy call. I don't, the defendant didn't even object to that. I mean, the conversation clearly did not fit into the definition of testimonial hearsay, which you know, basically turns on whether there's objective evidence indicating that the statement was obtained for the primary purpose of establishing or proving past events potentially relevant to a later criminal prosecution. I mean, obviously, two guys talking in jail uh, don't, that, that conversation doesn't fit into a testimonial hearsay, so it's non-testimonial hearsay. And since the statements of the co-defendants were non-testimonial, the admission of the statements in defendant's joint trial, subject to a limiting instruction, didn't violate the Bruton Rule. So any statement of an accomplice or co-defendant that is non-testimonial is admissible at a joint trial of the defendant, notwithstanding the Bruton Rule as a whole? Not exactly. You know, you got to keep in mind that while the admission of non-testimonial hearsay will not violate the Confrontation Clause, it has to still fall within a hearsay exception in order to be admissible at all over a hearsay objection. Now, if there's a joint trial, the statement of one co-defendant will usually be admissible as an admission against that co-defendant under section, Evidence Code Section 1220, even though it remains inadmissible hearsay against the co-defendant in a joint trial. That problem can be cured by a limiting instruction. However, the issue of whether the jury can compartmentalize the admission and follow that court's instruction to only use it against a defendant who made the admission, that concern still exists even though the Sixth Amendment and due process is not implicated. I mean, a defendant could still argue for severance of the case for redaction of a statement or for exclusion of the statement under Evidence Code Section 352 on grounds of prejudice. The difference is, and what's the significance of this case, uh, the holding in this case, is that when it comes to non-testimonial hearsay, severance or exclusion is not required, nor is it compelled in the way it would be if the Sixth Amendment right of confrontation or due process was implicated. Okay. Well, overall, that's a a pretty good decision for the prosecution side, and it definitely lets us end the podcast on uh, on a decidedly high note. Agreed. Uh, Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeff.